Hope you're hungry. The table is set. Join us for another cosmic feast. Welcome, everybody. I'm your host, David, and this is your host, Sydney. Westchester County boomerangs stumbling upon the eye of Sauron, Roswell explained, and Japanese baked Alaska in the sky. Come around, kids. This is <laughs> season one, episode five, UFOs part two. We are back today covering the second part of UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record by Leslie Keen. Sydney, my partner in crime, was kind enough to give us the first half of the cake last time, and now we're diving into the rest of it. I think a lot of Leslie Keen's book, what we discussed last time, or at least what we touched upon, was the idea that, yeah, the U.S. might have its own sort of backwards ways of handling the UFO phenomenon and addressing it, but that's not the way it's handled all over the world. I mean, um, we talked about France being a pioneer as far as forming that coalition, getting the public to take an interest, getting a coalition of professionals, general scientists to discuss UFOs, starting a program in in the open. We get to see France be the pioneer of showing you how government can just be completely transparent on the subject, or at least way more transparent than any other government. And then and then we're going to get to see Leslie Keene goes over a lot of the ins and outs. I feel like this book is extremely, extremely important because it not only gives you a lot of um, the stories directly from the the officials and the commanders and everything that are in each of these governments. She gives you Mm -hmm. stories that are international from Chile Mm -hmm. to Brazil. So we're not just looking at the U.S. side of things. We're getting all kinds of different perspectives. And she really weaves the political spectrum of why this is secret or or where, where would we... Why it causes issues. Yeah, why it causes issues between bureaucracy how it's kind of set up in different departments and every in different countries. We're going to be looking at that. The very first part of what we're going to cover has to do with contrasting what you went over, which was the Belgium wave of UFOs. Um, I think it was in the early 80s. Well, the crazy thing is that there was a Hudson Valley wave that took place in 1984. So Hudson Valley, like New York? Hudson Valley, Area? like right here. And I know that wow. sounds crazy. That almost sounds, that got me excited. I was like, it's like the 4th of July of UFOs. Like if I knew this was going <laughs> on, I would just, who wouldn't right. just drive up there to go check this yeah, out? Yeah, just take the, take the Metro North up to Poughkeepsie and yeah. say hi to the aliens for me. For once, <laughs> for once it's not happening in Arizona or, you know, by the Skinwalker Ranch or wherever have you. It's right. happening in the deserts of New Mexico. In our backyard. So these sightings were known as the Westchester County boomerangs. Um, Boomerangs. The boomerang term has to do with the fact that a lot of them were in that shape 
They were in the V shape with different formations mm. of lights around the V itself. Um, it began in upstate New York and different parts of Connecticut. It started December 1982, but it peaked oh, within wow. a two-year period. Years of UFO sightings. Um, well, there's a wave in... Uh, it's the only other wave that I've read extensively about and forgotten about extensively is John Keel uh, talking about the waves of the late 1800s, uh, which happened mm. all over the place. Those waves had to do with dirigibles and like fancy hyper technological blimps and crazy like blimp people, like somebody like characters out of a Miyazaki movie. But this wave was different. This wave included um, dark, solid structures where people saw these formations of lights like in a V, but they saw a dark, solid structure behind it. People were stopping in the middle of the road, parking uh, like on the Taconic. Wow. Taconic, yeah. Taconic mm -hmm. Parkway. They were just stopped. I've been on that skinny little street. You have? Yeah, it's a tiny road, and they call it a highway, and it's just like a, a one-lane road. I mean, there's traffic in both lanes, but it's only one lane each way, and it's surrounded by forest. No lights. Terrible. Needs to be repaved. Just to give you guys an idea visually. Is it, this is it like It's dark? dangerous to pull over on. Is it dark and nature-y over very there? dark. Yes, very dark, very nature-y, very hilly. Um, and a couple of times you'll like come around and all of a sudden you're, you're like on a cliff, like a huge drop off to the other side of the traffic. It's like 40 feet below you. <laughs> Seriously. You always have like really great stories to add to what I'm saying because I've never been there. And at the same time, I can just imagine this people walking their dogs, yeah. people stopping their cars. These were ships the size of football fields just speeding, uh, you know, wow. jumping all over the place. And boomerang-shaped football field. Which is kind of cool, right? Did you ever own a boomerang? <laughs> no. I think they were like, you know, parents were very scared to let their children have those. They could be dangerous. I mean, as long as there's not a blade on there to behead Jimmy or They're big. Brother. Have you ever seen a boomerang? No, but listen, boomerang was one of those things as a kid that I kind of yearned for in my heart and like wondered why I couldn't right. have one. Well, you get like the, you get the tiny plastic, like five inch boomerangs from parties, That's like what birthday I parties had. that you go to. Yeah, no, those aren't real boomerangs. If you want it to come back to you, it, they're like, they're weighted on the end. They're like two feet wide. They're very scary things. I wonder why a UFO craft would be shaped that way. But honestly, you could say that about any of these crafts because there's so many different I mean, shapes and they're emitting a low humming sound. You don't hear any kind of propulsion. If there's a plane or a helicopter, you're going to hear it if it's in the area. And right. I was thinking, Sydney, yeah, like living in the city, anytime there's a plane passing by, it doesn't matter how far away it is. If it's going anywhere near you, you hear it super loud. Super loud. It breaks the sound barrier. So it usually passes you, and then it's really loud. So, like, this, in this instance, that doesn't happen. And at this point, we're used to um, hearing planes go by all the time where we don't even hear them anymore because we're used to the white noise. Right, right. Out of all of, of this entire freaking wave, there was one great photograph taken during this time of this triangle, of one of the triangle crafts. Ooh. Triangle and boomerang craft. I want you to take a look at it. I sent you the link. Yeah, I think I did look at it, but I thought it was a triangle. So this one, yeah. So it's triangle 
So they call it delta. Delta or V-shaped objects. This is one of the delta-shaped objects. It was taken in 1990. It's called the Petit delta. Ray Chain Photo. Yeah, this is scary. It has like a center illuminated dot. And then, like they said, the delta triangle shape. And it, it basically looks like a Dorito on fire. <laughs> Dude. Just to give you guys an image. And not even like a normal Dorito. It looks like one of those Mexican Doritos that we never heard of over here. Like, <laughs> like some dark demonic Dorito. Uh, Why does that make it Mexican? Well, because my girlfriend is Mexican and... I don't know. Somehow I've researched <laughs> Doritos. They have different Doritos there is my point. And they oh, probably have a I black see, see. one that's called like UFO Chipotle or something. And it's Yeah, no, it looks like the blue the blue corn chips, you know? Like a blue corn chip in the sky on fire. <laughs> Let's see what it says here. Mr. PM is a young worker. The photo was allegedly made at the beginning of April 1990. Mm. The photographer's girlfriend <laughs> saw the object, gave him notice. He had a roll nearly finished in his apparatus and made the last two. He snapped pictures 35 and 36 on the roll. He sent the roll to a lab that was offering cheap prices. When the roll came back, only 35 was good and practically nothing was on 36. He showed the two photographs to the people working with him and the rest is history. Taken on a Kodak camera. And you know what I was thinking? I was thinking, is it better for us to have old school cameras on us? Because that's something that they couldn't jam electronically. Right, right. Only time in my life, Sydney, of course, and it has to do with <laughs> UFOs, where I've had any interest in getting an old camera. <laughs> or like one of those wind-up, that's what I'm picturing, like a Kodak, the wind-up film, where, you know, you it has like 30 pictures yeah. on it, and you wind it up, and... Yeah, that I guess I wonder because you can't change any of the settings though, and you would need to adjust the like shutter speed, right, for the exposure of the picture to come out in, at nighttime. I mean, for for so these, I wonder how that would affect for these people to have for us to have one. I mean, listen, I wanted to show it to you because I'm so grateful that we have one photograph from the Hudson Valley boomerangs. Yeah, but like, uh, right? How do we just have one? You know. These things, they give this off enough. This is 1990, man. <laughs> well, they, they also, they have the ability with electromagnetic field or something to completely mess with technology. And right. I think that's kind of awesome that they have this far-reaching power that we've talked about. So the Belgians saw triangle craft, <laughs> but here in the Hudson Valley, that's what, we, that's what we got as well. Well, let me just give you an example. If we go back to the Bel we'll compare them. If we go back to the Belgian wave in 1989, yeah. two pairs of policemen in different locations watched a red ball of light shoot out on a beam from a craft, which was then drawn back mm -hmm. into the UFO. A rare detail observed at close range. Heinrich Nickel, one of the policemen who witnessed the spectacle, interpreted it to be a probe of some sort. So they see right. a little... We talked about this. That happened over the water, remember? Okay. So listen, exactly, exactly right. So this is why we're comparing it. What he said in his interview, the ball kept leaving and coming back as if it were trying to measure something. Now you cut to Hudson Valley. Jim Cook, a biomedical engineer, was shocked. Now you can tell which one's in, in the States or which one's in... Uh, <laughs> in uh, Belgium, because one dude's name is Heinrich Nicol, and the other one's right. Jim Cook. 
What wasn't the point of renaming people when they came to America to like be based off of what their their uh, prior generations did for a job? So why is Jim Cook a biomedical engineer? Shouldn't he be like a chef? Well, he decided to <laughs> do something different. He was like, "No, Dad, okay. I will not work in the family <laughs> restaurant." <laughs> so a biomedical right, engineer <laughs> named Jim Cook, who decides to defy his father and say, no, dad, I will not make gumbo for the rest of my life. He was shocked to see a triangular craft hovering no, hovering no more than 15 <laughs> feet above the water of the Crouton Falls Reservoir. Now it says it might be Croton, but we have to call it Crouton. It's Croton. Oh my gosh, you're so funny. It, Crouton Falls. Listen, if your name is Croton, you're going to be called Crouton. So a biomedical engineer sees the triangular craft above the water, just like in the Belgian case, one October night in 1983 while driving home. And I quote, something came from the underside of the object, a red beam of light or something solid that was glowing red. Mm. I really don't know what, but it seemed to be probing the water, interacting with the water there and then go. it retracted. What there is going go. on? Is it the same craft? Are they similar crafts? Is it the same dog and pony show that some little alien boy is like pressing a button and like just lighting up our our shit all over the Hudson Valley? <laughs> the Belgian Air Force was responsive, to say the least. They um, they scrambled F-16s to intercept one of the craft. They held a press conference. They they basically did they did a lot of things out in the open when this was going on. They didn't deny it. They investigated it. They sent their military out. They met together. They talked in true European fashion. They're like, we are going to have a glass of wine and we're going to talk about this. And the Belgian Air Force, they worked together. We had a bunch of different labs analyzing the photographs that were taken during the Belgian wave. What did the U.S. do? It Nothing. Barely reported on it. Barely. Of course. Even though, even though in 1984 uh, there was a security breach at the Indian Port nuclear plant, the UFO was hovering 300 feet above the reactor in restricted airspace. We're not investigating it. We're not, we're not addressing it. Um, witnesses were left to their own. Imagine Sydney a UFO light show lighting up New York City. And like, I don't know if you could get away with that in New York City, but like the government's just like, you're on your own. We're not going to talk about it. We're not going to address it. And I mean, isn't that kind of the case for like everything? That's that's the government's answer for everything. You're on your own. You figure it out. I mean, it's <laughs> it's definitely the case here to the extreme. I'm really excited to talk about this man that we mentioned last time. Because I learned a lesson as a human being with this man specifically, because the last time we talked about Dr. J. Allen Hynek uh, in the mm. last episode, I got really upset. I got really, really upset yep. because we were talking about him being the major debunker and the, the brilliant mind behind calling these things swamp gas all the time. And, right, right. And I thought to myself, there's nothing more despicable than somebody who was responsible for some bogus project blue book that was really just a front to, to give people 
you know, the illusion that Peace we are studying something. And I judged right. this man and I said, you know, this, I, in my mind, I was like, this represents like something I just don't want to happen anymore. I just don't want people yeah. to do this. It's better to not say anything than to play with us and to just laugh in our faces. And the reason that I am so excited is because Dr. J. Allen Hynek, um, he turned things around at the end of his life. And he had a change of heart. He had a complete change of heart, mind, and soul. Even though he died in 1986, he began investigating the Hudson Valley wave in 1984. So two years before his death, he got involved in the Hudson mm -hmm. Valley waves. Um, and he started documenting. He did what he did best, which even if he was the debunker extraordinaire, he did, he was responsible for documenting cases. And documenting cases is the bread and butter of having a UFO program in the first place. You're the one, right. you're the one who documents, who calls, who interviews, who, who gathers evidence. So he goes out there, Hudson Valley, on his own accord, um, and he's completely baffled by the Hudson Valley wave. He's even more baffled by the fact that the police and the media are completely derelict in their apathy and indifference, says Leslie Keene. Mm. And Hynek says, it was as if a malady plunged all who encountered it, except the witnesses, into a deadly stupor, a powerful desire to do nothing. He investigated hundreds of UFO cases, interviewing countless credible witnesses, and he realized that there was this real physical phenomenon of denial happening. Like, this is so important to talk about because the taboo of UFOs, it all boils down to, um, to pretty much this definition. Hynek observed that the taboo of UFOs are so contradictory to what we consider normal that they're just unacceptable to our worldview. It's, the taboo is so powerful that it even thwarts groups in authority. The best way out of even confronting something that's in your face all over the sky is to just label all the witnesses as crackpots. Yeah, yeah. Hynek defines it as, quote unquote, the, the phenomenon overheats the human mental circuits and blows the fuses in a protective mechanism for the mind. When a collective breaking point is reached, the mind must openly disregard uh, the patent evidence of the senses. It can no longer encompass such evidence within its borders. There's no more energy for action. There's, there's nothing. Basically, what something so shocking and so in your face does is it shuts down the brain and the brain starts operating like a dead battery. Overheats the mental, the, the human mental circuits. And I just think that's so great because whenever we think about, like, I, this shouldn't even be a taboo subject, but it totally is. It was taboo for Leslie Keene. It's taboo for anybody who talks about it. Your career will be ruined. You'll be, uh, you'll be made fun of. You know, you, if you're a scientist, you're, you know, you can forget about having a future. I mean, at least this is the world we used to live in. And this is definitely the world that uh, Hynek left behind. That vindicates him in a lot of ways in my eyes. I mean... And, and it's yeah. not my place to vindicate anybody. It's not my place to judge. And I think on the show, it's really important not to judge. 
you know, because as human beings, we might judge, but as reporters and entertainers, uh, you know, we're going to try, try our best not to. Um, but no, I, and, and well, you're not supposed to take anybody's side as a reporter either. You're just trying to get the facts. Yeah. And in, a, and in an indirect way, you know, we're reporting on the reporting and we're learning as we go. And, and I just think it's incredible that he was able to put his finger on what happens to the brain and how like the brain just shuts down and, and just can't handle, can't handle this at all. So, um, but it is worth, it is worth exploring. Um, Leslie then goes into the world of Nick Pope. Do you know who Nick Pope is? I wonder what his parents used to be. <laughs> dad, I don't want to do Please, it. Dad. <laughs> I don't like the robes, dad. They don't fit me. <laughs> So what did Nick Pope become other than some no. form Listen, of if your family was attribute. in the Pope business, you'd be a Pope. Uh, <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't know. That gig is like... I'd fight it. Seems like, seems like a, it's like, it seems like a rock star kind of gig. So Nick Pope is the man, the only man, one of the only men assigned to head the government UFO project in the UK from 1991 to 1994. Um, UK has its own history. Now we're, now we're scampering around the world, Sydney, and we're going to the UK. You ready? Have you, have you been to the UK? I have a couple times. Yeah. And what, what do you make of the, that lovely place? Do you think that they had a better, uh, system of dealing with UFOs? I mean, I didn't ask anybody, anybody about UFOs when I was in the UK, but we stayed in London and it was... It was basically like New York, but cleaner and quieter. I feel like I would gain a lot of weight in the UK because I would totally eat like oh, meat totally. pie all the all time. All the bread. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Anything. Fresh bread. Give me some of those mashed peas too because I've never. Yeah. I've, have you ever seen anybody make mashed peas in this country? That should be like more mm -hmm. of a side dish here. Right. Right. Should yeah. It? I mean, sometimes we would like mash our peas and put it in. Tuna noodle casserole. Is that a thing? Next time I go to the grocery store, I'm going to buy peas and I'm going to mash them. Wait, so are we done talking about Hynek or are we going to go back to him? For We're done time? talking about Hynek. Oh, because I did want to say one thing. I was, I was looking at more about why he had his change of heart. And there was a, there's a good quote from him where he said two things. So in a 1985 interview, this is shortly before he passed, which was um, because of a brain tumor. So, in a 1985 interview, when asked for why he changed his opinion, he responded, two things, really. One was completely, one was the completely negative and unyielding attitude of the Air Force. They wouldn't give UFOs a chance of existing, even if they were flying up and down the street in broad daylight. Everything had to have an explanation, and I began to resent that, even though I basically felt the same way, because I still thought that they weren't going about it in the right way. You can't assume that everything is black no matter what. Secondly, the caliber of the witnesses began to trouble me. Quite few instances were reported by military pilots that I knew them, and they seemed to be fairly well-trained. So this is when I first began to think that, well, maybe there's something more to all this. And this is what we've been talking about the whole time. So I, I just, I found that, that quote very, like, eye-opening, but also like, duh, Alan Hynek, get it together. Like, dude, where have you been? And, you know, yeah, and it took you getting this brain tumor surgery to like realize that maybe there's something more to it. Well, it's just really, <laughs> it's really nuts to think about somebody who was in charge of this stuff 
And it, it right. just, they didn't realize that something was going on. Like, I mean, there's right. no, there's the, you know, there's no reason to think that just because you're in charge of something, you have to believe in it or you have to have seen anything. I mean, um, I, I bet Nick, I don't know if Nick Pope ever had a sighting. I mean, that'd be good to know. But as far as Heineck is concerned, um, you know, it took him a long time to come around, but there was something in his heart that probably told him that this was real. And he yeah. probably came across certain people that made him see that. He, he probably, you know, got phone calls from people during the Hudson Valley wave. Like there was, there was definitely, I wonder if we looked into his life, what were the things that started to lead him down um, right. changing his mind? And I mean, it, it's pretty typical for people who know that like they're going to be dying soon or they don't feel like it's like suddenly you re- have that realization that you're not immortal and you're like, wow, I need to like take a step back and look at my life from the outside. And people tend to have change of hearts during that realization all the time. So this isn't anything new necessarily. But yeah, like what outside um, evidence changed his perspective and, and who were they? And, and yeah, what words were said? Like, you know, and this- what does it take? And, you know, it, it, Leslie Keene is so amazing and smart because she kind of, she, she doesn't want to paint a picture of this just being the government's, the U.S. government's fault as to why we all have it or treat it as taboo. She, she's explaining, and Heineck was explaining too, that, that you know, we're all kind of collectively um, not giving this a chance by, uh, by not not looking at the facts and by jumping right. to conclusions, you know, by saying it's not extraterrestrials. Well, wait a second. Nobody's that the extraterrestrial is, it's just a theory. What we're all we're yeah. saying is that this is real. It, it, there's something out there and it's intelligent and it's being controlled by something and it's beyond yeah. our technology and capability. So, um, why are we lying about this? And, um, there's no reason to lie. And I think that's where these men have a change in heart, men or women, um, where they see that um, you have a responsibility to people, to society, when you lie about something like this. You know, it, mm-hmm. it definitely weighs on you. And I don't know what that would feel mm-hmm. like. I'm not a public figure, you know. So Pope uh, received, Pope was like a man at a desk, and all the UFO files would go to him. Uh, he worked for a civilian secretariat division on the air staff, a, an intelligence, DDI intelligence division, and then he became actively involved in investigating UFOs. Um, and, uh, he said that they would get about 200 to 300 reports a year, um, wow. and he was tasked with getting as much information as possible. So, again... The investigating, just uh, the sighting, mm-hmm. the date, time, location, description, speed, height. Um, what you do with that information is you cross-reference it. Anytime there's a UFO sighting, you take that information and you cross-reference it first. First, you have to make sure mm-hmm. it's nothing that can be explained. And most of the times it can be explained by something natural. So you have to do that work. You have to say, is there aerial activity, such as any kind of civilian flights, military exercises, or weather balloon launches in the area. You have to do your homework. Um, You have to see if the Royal Greenwich Observatory 
had any astronomical phenomenon like meteors or fireballs that can explain the situation. You have to, right. you have to turn all those stones. Um, and then once you, once you go through all of that and you realize that it's something other than all of those things, that's when you know you have, you have something genuine um, to explore. Because you can't identify it, literally. <laughs> you can't identify it with anything. It doesn't abide by the rules of anything that we know. So March 30th, around 8.30 p.m., or the way I like to say that, 8.30 p.m., March 30th. <laughs> in Somerset... Ayo! In, <laughs> in Somerset, uh, there, was, there was a sighting at 8.30, and there was a sighting at 9 p.m. in the Quantock Hills. A civilian in Rugley, Staffordshire, uh-oh, UK names are getting more complicated, who reported a UFO... Staffordshire, who reported a UFO <laughs> that he estimated being 200 meters in diameter. He and other family members told me how they chased the object in their car and got extremely close to it, believing it had landed in a nearby field. When they had got there a few seconds later, there was nothing. Many of the descriptions related to triangular-shaped craft or lights were descriptions of what they thought was underneath the craft. These sightings were also seen... Uh, by the patrol of Air Force police at the RAF station at Cosford, 150 miles northwest of London. Their official police report, uh, classified police incompetence, stated that the UFO passed over the base. They said, at great velocity, at an altitude of approximately 1,000 feet, um, they described two white lights with a faint red glow at the rear, no engine noise being heard. Meteorological officer at RAF Shawbury, the base that provides advanced training for helicopter air crew, air traffic controllers, and flight operations personnel for all three of the UK's armed services, saw the UFO. Wow. Slowly across the countryside toward the base at a speed of no more than 30 to 40 miles per hour, they described seeing a craft fire a narrow beam of light like a laser at the ground and saw the light sweeping backward and forward across the field beyond the perimeter fence, as if they were looking for something. He heard an unpleasant low-frequency humming sound coming from the object, and he could feel as well as hear this, rather like standing in front of a bass speaker. He estimated the size of the craft to be midway between a C-130 Hercules transport aircraft and a Boeing 747. Then he told me the light beam retracted in an unnatural way and the craft suddenly accelerated to the horizon many times faster than military aircraft. So well, what are they scanning for? It seems like, I don't know, there's something when I hear the stories of them just scanning, but there are people watching, it's like they want us to see them or it's like, if this, what if this craft was like some organic AI intelligence and you just stumble upon it and it's like a little like puppy, like just looking around <laughs> with this technology that can wipe us out in a second. And it's just like, oh, you're looking at me, you know, and it's like, woof, woof, and it just disappears again. And it <laughs> has row. no, uh, no care in the world. I mean, they want to be seen, right? Or, or are we just catching them randomly? I mean, I, I don't see the 
the inspiration, the motivation for wanting to be seen. I, I think it's more that we're just catching them because maybe to me, like scanning for stuff just seems like another routine trip. Like we just have to go do this because we have to get it done. Um, and so it, it's yeah, it's just it's like it's not intentional that we see them, but they're just like, well, we can't just try to remain hidden all the time. We have to go get this done. So the one that made me think, though, was the one with the, with the kids who came up over the hill because they thought they saw it land in the field and then it was gone. Yeah. That Unless there was, like, some kind of markings in the field, that, that makes me wonder, because um, I keep going back to that holographic uh, I- idea, like hypothesis, that maybe what we're seeing in the sky is just something that has, like, that is is a refraction of light from something else that we're seeing. And it looks like it's really up there, but it's not. It's just the way the light is refracting. It's creating what, what would be like a holograph of an image that did exist at one time. And so that like continuously. Are you talking about those, like, like a mis- ghost echo versus an intelligence? Mm, yeah, kind of. Yeah. Like, I mean, it could be. Yeah. It Right. It couldn't. Maybe it's not even something that is of intelligence. It just happens to be like the way the water was hitting on the moonlight. Oh, no, was no, refracting no. You're saying it's like, and, you're basically saying it's like swamp gas or something. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Is, is that, what are the, what are the explanations that people are trying to develop for these things that it's like, oh, but did you really, did you really see it? Was it really something like a physical object in the sky or? Well, that's, kind of well, there, that's where Leslie Keen's brilliance comes in because we're, we're not talking about a family in that last part. We're talking about a meteorological officer at a RAF Shawsbury base where they train helicopter crew, traffic controllers, flight operations personnel. These are people who know what's out there right. in the sky. And they yeah, see and something. I'm not doubting those. The story I was questioning was the one of the kids and the thing landed but in the field. Don't you think? Well, you know how I, I compared it to like a weird AI puppy of some kind. But the the the, the, right. the reason that I did that is because I imagine that when you're seeing something intelligent, like you know when you realize that a dog and a cat is intelligent. You realize it. You realize it. You're like, oh, they're smart. They they're aware of mm-hmm. me. They're aware of you know their environment. They they want things. They're communicating. You know they're 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 communicating. And I yeah. feel like you would know if something is communicating and intelligent because it it thinks you know and it's kind of up to something. And as weird mm-hmm. as these orbs and stuff are, and and keep in mind. Most of the time, it is going to be something natural. And it is, it right. is going to be that. But about 4 or 5% of the time, it's going to be something super, super weird. And I was thinking that you were referring to this concept of a hologram where, let me give you, let me give you, and I, I didn't necessarily just want to delve it out randomly in the middle of the episode, but let me give you... My best, one of my best ways to think about the UFO phenomenon, and it's it's my gift to you right now. That's not that sounds so pretentious. Hey, this is important. But no, it's 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 not pretentious. My gift it's, to you. it's 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 my gift as far as this this small way to look at Operation Trojan Horse, which felt like a thousand pages of John Keel's work, and then I had this one insight where I was like, when you're operating a laser pointer. 
with a cat, right? You're mm-hmm. operating a mm-hmm. laser pointer. The cat's chasing this laser pointer. Granted, cats are smart enough to know that we're doing it, but when they're kittens, they have no idea where that's coming from. Imagine right, the UFO right. phenomenon being some kind of like end result of whatever's operating it. It could literally be anything operating the laser pointer. It doesn't have to be a craft. It doesn't have to be an alien. It doesn't have to be, it could be a god. It could be a trickster. It could be, it could be people from the future messing with our heads. I mean, what is behind what is behind the dog and pony show? What's behind the theater and the laser pointer that we're seeing? And I don't know if you can see, like, I just, that kind of helps me because I'm like, yeah, if you have advanced enough technology, imagine if we had advanced enough technology to go back in time right now and just mess with people. Like we, we right. if we could hire, like, if we could spend like millions of dollars or let's say we didn't need millions of dollars because it was just, we were so advanced. We had the technology. It was nothing. And it comes, yeah. it comes with you're your, with with your <laughs> iPhone or yeah, you're freaking born with it. It's, it's an implant. And like, you're just able to turn on like fireworks, you know, these, these ancient men and women, and you're able to um, trick them. Like imagine how scared they would be. Like you could create anything, yeah. even with our technology, you could, with Hollywood technology, with, with science today, you could create some sort of uh, elaborate hoax to mess with people, and they would have no idea what's behind it. And there are reasons why I think the UFO phenomenon is not that. I don't think that it's just one entity or entities messing with us, um, because it's still a mystery as to what they would be. Um, but it's something you have to keep coming back to. You have to keep wondering mm-hmm. what's behind this. Because it is akin to a holograph. They don't make noises. They're different colors and shapes. They, right. they zip right. around like they don't follow the rules of physics and gravity. Um, and anyway, it's just, a, it's just an interesting well, way I love to think that about you're, it. Yeah, I love that your uh, comparison there was to a, a cat with a with a little light beam because that's um that's a great observation and I you know how much I love cats so I can definitely relate to that <laughs> I know but it's but it's also I think that you need with all of this stuff you need like simple reference points to kind of understand the concepts behind like and what what can an intelligence be an intelligence could be right. anything controlling controlling the the distraction you know yeah, I mean, anytime I can talk about cats on our show, I'm gonna go for it. Maybe I'll take not it every in the time. middle of the episode. Maybe not every middle time. Middle end. I I made it a personal goal to bring up cats and how they're aliens in every episode. So <laughs> I think we're still standing strong here. Yeah, we got to get our hands on like the best, the greatest books written about alien cats. Um, yeah, where are they? Please send them to us. We're going to find them. them. (laughs) Uh, I heard you say something at the beginning about the Eye of Sauron. So are we like, did we already pass that or? Like, no, we're getting there. And I'm glad you brought that up because we're on our way there. But um, how do we know, uh, just to tie this up with Nick Pope and the UK 
business, how do we know that what we're seeing is not a test, right? How do we know right. it's not a government test because we have to cross that off our list? Um, well, tests occur in specific areas and the government can differentiate between uh, a test that's usually scheduled, usually in a specific area, if they're testing mysterious crap, unless they're testing things with us involved as like a social experiment to see how are we going to react to the holographic light show in the sky. Like (laughs) they're, they're usually happening in certain areas. Oh, have you been keeping a synchronicity journal? My dear. I have. I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to mention that at the beginning, but it didn't. I didn't find a good point to mention it. Um, but I have been keeping a synchronicity journal. They, so far, like what I've recorded have been very minute, like tiny things. Um, but it's just kind of a, a little like ping in the brain where you're like, ooh, connection. And uh, that's a so lovely way to stuff. describe it a ping in the brain. Ping in the brain. Yeah. Um, um, one, one actually happened to me like an hour before we started recording. I was yeah, on the phone with my aunt. Hit me. I want to hear one. Yeah, I was on the phone with my aunt, uh, who I missed her call a couple days ago, so I called her back, and I was feeling real bad. And um, she she was talking to me and telling me about like taking care of her grandkids and stuff. And I was uh, cutting out these game cards. Um, I, I downloaded a game called Poopocalypse, <laughs> and so I was cutting out all the cards. And uh, as I was cutting one out, she was like, "I know it'll probably sound corny to you, Sydney." And the the card I was cutting was literally titled "Corny." So we heard your synchronicity. This is mine. I'm, I'm coming in. Um, I'm coming into my apartment. Uh, there was an ant infestation in my apartment like the day before. I woke up and I found an army of ants uh, descending on my cat's food bowl. It was hmm. horrific. Uh, I felt bad for my cat. I felt bad for the ants. Um, uh, my girlfriend was freaked out. and um, And there were so many of them. So, so many of them. And I had to descend on these things like, I don't even want to say. (laughs) Like the wrath of a God, right? Which was, which was sad. And I, and I am deeply sorry to these little creatures for having to do so. But here's the interesting part of the synchronicity. I'm putting down my keys the day afterwards. I'm listening to the Joe Rogan podcast. And just as I look over at the area where the ants were, I think in my mind at that very moment, I think, I wonder if there are any ants there. And just as I have that thought, the podcast says the words, they would come down on us and we would be as insignificant to them as ants would be. Ooh, yeah, that's and a this good is, one. This is about aliens. This is about ants. It's totally synchronicitous. And it, it's turning it's turning us humans into the ants, and I hope it's not a. That's a synchronicity. And what does your synchronicity yeah. mean? What does a synchronicity mean? Um, it, I think it means that. I don't know. Things things line up sometimes in strange ways, and that the universe is listening to us and talking to us. Let's see if I can find an actual definition on the internet. Synchronicity is a concept first introduced by analytical psychologist Carl Jung, which holds that events are meaningful coincidences if they occur with no casual relationship yet seem to be meaningfully related. 
Well, that's John's definition. I, I think I liked Randall's is more, but um, it's, it's... Oh, yeah, that's right. It's honestly a hard thing to define, and to me, it means I think that. She, she also said meaningful coincidence, though, right? I remember that exact term. Well, yeah, but we we went over her take on it, and... Right. Um, to me, it means... What does it mean to you? I mean, to me, it means that the universe is speaking to you. The universe is alive, and the way it, it, it can literally speak to you with synchronicities in time. Like, right. it, it speaks to you with the entire world at that moment. Like, it, it does everything but reach out and touch you from inside the television. You know, it's like ah. that kind of strange moment. Did you have any other synchronicities? Um, I did have some other ones. Here, I could just read off my list. They're all very short. Not super significant. Should we? What? Should we do yeah. this? Do you want to do this well, or should we save it? What are we it? saving it for? <laughs> I think I think every podcast we could just talk about any new synchronicities that came up. All right, so I'll start in orders. Okay, so I was on I was I was with my friend Sarah and we were talking about pets that we always wanted when we were growing up. And she told me that she wanted a chinchilla and I was like that's amazing because I just ordered a chinchilla pin online. That's that said chinchillin on it. And then I shit you not, we, we're playing trivia crack with each other. And like an hour later, she sends me a screenshot of her answering a question in trivia crack that said, what animal is this? And it was a fucking chinchilla. <laughs> Wait, it was a screenshot of a what? A uh, trivia crack. It's like a phone game where you just like play trivia against each other. This is something she was playing. We, we play it together, but she answered a question against me. And her question was, what is this animal? And it was a chinchilla. So she screenshotted it and sent it to me to be like, look. That's a good one. So wait, first you bought the pen. That's the first thing that happened. Yeah. Second, you guys had a conversation about what pet you wanted and she brought up a chinchilla. Yep. And (laughs) then you were playing a game with this person because you have a lot of games in your life. And and the, the answer was chinchilla. Yeah, it was what animal is this? And it was a picture of a chinchilla and she screenshotted it and sent it to me. That is trippy on almost, almost, (laughs) it's almost a banana sandwich level of trippiness. (laughs) If it had happened in a dream, if there was a chinchilla and a dream involved, then then we'd be, we'd be in business, Sydney. (laughs) All right. So that's my first synchronous. Mine, mine are so simple in a way, but my first one is. I thought that was simple too, but I guess it wasn't. No, that one's that one's got like three layers to it. Um, that's a try. That's a trifecta synchronicity. Um, my here and <laughs> and maybe that's something we'll get into as we record more of them and we just keep this going. But mine was very simple. I was walking down uh, Mulberry Street in Nolita, and I see coming down the street at the very moment that I enter the street, I see the very same car like the only car I've ever owned in New Jersey, which was a Zion. And it's come and it's basically nice. the, the little model that I used to have. And it's an older model and it's not the same color, but it just goes driving down. I'm, yeah. I'm reaching, I'm reaching for it. I want it. I want more. Right. I got to right. start. I got to yeah. we're not going to all get blessed with chinchilla magic. You know, <laughs> we, we, we got to reach for, we got to grasp at straws here. What's your second one? Give it to me. 
It, that kind of reminded me of another synchronicity that used to happen to me. It doesn't happen anymore. But back when I was in high school, one of my boyfriends drove around a Dodge Intrepid. And I don't know if you can picture what those cars look like, but on the back, they have circular taillights, like red circles, one on each end. Like, it, and, and no other car is like this, like big, bright red circles. And so um, um, after we broke up, I, I kept seeing Intrepid taillights everywhere. Like no matter where I went, where I was driving... Um, 100 miles away or, you know, like in a different state, I, I would always see intrepid taillights. Like like the car would be right in front of me or passing me or like I'd see one come around the corner at nighttime love and it. I was like, why, why? Yeah. Love it, love so it. Yeah, that, that you're can like, be my why, story. why? Universe, you are talking <laughs> to me. That reminds me, when yeah. I broke up with my last or with my ex-girlfriend, for there was a good hot like, few months where I constantly saw girls that looked exactly like her from behind. And I constantly oh thought I was going to run into her and she was going to turn around. I even saw one girl that was so close to my ex-girlfriend's face. I was like shocked. I'm like, this is not her, but it's her. I thought it was a message from the universe a bunch of times. Cause I'm like, how, what are the odds that I'm sitting next to somebody that looks exactly like her? And the funny <laughs> yeah. thing is I didn't run into that ex-girlfriend for years, but there was a period of wow. running into doppelganger versions of her. She was, she, these girls were the Dodge challengers or the Dodge intrepids of the, of the story. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. So, uh, give me another one. Okay, so here's the next one. Um, I recently put on a production of Avenue Q, and the main person that I was uh, like setting all the, you know, organizing all the details about with um, was my best friend Josh. Yeah, Josh. And um, in in one of his lines, he uh, his character talks about uh, raising money for like for me, my character um, for a school, and he says all we made is six dollars and and an MTA card. Right. And and at that time when we were like going through it, he opened up his wallet physically like my friend Josh and he pulled out everything that was in it. And he literally still had an MTA card from when he visited me last September. And all the change in all the cash in his in his wallet was a five dollar bill and a one dollar bill. So he had six dollars in an MTA card in his freaking wallet. <laughs> so he just he just says this and he he just kind of like the synchronicity just like opens up its little flappy, trippy doors. And it, he just kind of, <laughs> did he just know to look in his wallet? He just kind of felt it? I mean, he he did it for like dramatic emphasis. He opened up his wallet and he just pulled everything that was in the middle of it. And during that line, it said, we made $6 in an MTA card. And he pulls out a five, a one, and an MTA card. <laughs> and, the, and then we both just stopped and we were like, oh. <gasps> So I'm not the synchronicity police or anything, but, and, and I'm, <laughs> and that's funny because of the police, but like he didn't stage Same that. Thing. It was genuine. It, it, unless he's that good of an actor, I don't think he staged it because we both stopped and we just like, couldn't continue the line. No. And he was I like, mean, you, Oh my God. You know, unless everything you know about him is a lie, you know, your friends, right? And you guys had, yes. a, you guys had a major synchronicitous moment there. Yeah. I don't care yeah. if synchronicitous isn't a word. I love it. <laughs> I like it. I think it sounds good. It flows off the tongue. I say keep going. Diving in. Um, when we did our show on UFOs part one, uh, that evening, um, I had 
barely uh, gotten any sleep before that show. And that night I wasn't getting any sleep either. And I was up really, really late. And I was like, you know what? what? What do I love to do more than anything is spend my hard-earned cash on a virtual reality video game. So I was like, what am I going to get? What am I going to get? <laughs> I've like almost maxed out all the PSVR games at the store. And I'm like, all right, all right. What am I going to get? I'm going to get Ace Combat 7. So I was like, I'm going to get, I, I was like, I like flying simulators for some reason a lot. And I, I, I waited forever to download this game. This game finally downloads. I sit down to play it. Then it says it has to install for two hours. Mind you, it's like four or five in the morning. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm like, I want to play this game. I sit down to play this game, Sydney. And it's a realistic fighter jet simulator where I'm flying in this fighter jet. I'm being chased by enemy fighter jets. And the animation sequence in virtual reality The animation sequence that goes off when you get hit and you die in that game is like you feel the impact and the the fighter jet explodes. And what did we just talk about in that episode? We talked about fighter jets that were potentially intercepted by UFOs. Right. I was in the middle of dying the first time in that game at 4 or 5 a.m., and I was like, whoa. I was like, why did I download this? This is weird. I was like, why am I in yeah. a fighter jet? Like, what are the chances that I would like be in a fighter jet in a virtual reality video game? Like, I could have bought in that right. game at any other time. Uh, I did not consciously choose it because of our show. If anything, if I had even if it had even occurred to me that I was going to die in a fighter jet in the game, I wouldn't have downloaded it. Hit me, Sydney. What do you got? Uh, all right. Here's another really simple one. Um, so my friend uh, Joey, he was trying to pick out a song to sing for my sing-along that I recently had for the One Hit Wonders. And uh, he was like, oh, I want to sing Hey Mickey. And I was like, great. I'll put you down. You know, Hey Mickey. And I'm cleaning out my email like a half hour later and I'm looking through my email and I have this email that came from Tony Basil, which if you know the song, Hey Mickey, it's sung by Tony Basil. And I open it up and it was like, Tony Basil is going to go live on Instagram on Thursday or whatever. She was like, check it out. And it was like, out of all the people to send me an email, like why Tony Basil? (laughs) So random, right? Are you tap dancing with the synchronicity <laughs> goddess like at all times? Does this happen to you a lot? <laughs> That's wild. Um, I yeah, I guess it does happen to me often because I've, I've been writing you. them down. Yeah, yeah. And, and that was something we discussed. And I don't know, I don't know if we've discussed that maybe you have some sort of clairvoyant powers or something, but I think the universe likes playing with you. Um in a yeah, positive uh, way. I'm definitely yeah, it, it's an openness, and it's a friendly openness. That it, My yeah, synchronicities is- are usually fun and friendly, but, uh, like, the one I described was a little dark. Um, right. Uh, I, okay, so here is, and I love that one. I mean, that one's innocent. It's, it's it, it, innocent family fun. <laughs> it's, it's synchronicitous fun for the whole family. Um, so <laughs> my synchronicity, this is the best, probably the best normal one that I have. So... My girlfriend and I are talking right. about dogs, and I'm like, listen, I love cats. I would be fine just having cats forever. I'm like, listen, like, 
they're a lot less work and they're amazing and blah, 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 blah. But she's like, she owned a dog at one point that was a, uh, an Italian greyhound. She wants to have another dog. Oh, wow. We already discussed it. Just because I've already agreed to it, of course, means that I'm locked in uh, in the future yep. sometime for for maybe like a Whippet or, or a similar kind of dog. We start thinking of dog names because that's what you do in your 30s. You think of dog names. You yep. don't think of baby names. And uh, <laughs> so we're sitting around thinking of names and I'm like, That's what millennials uh, in their 30s do. Hell yeah. And we're just thinking about <laughs> um, names. And, and I tell her, I'm like, listen, I am a big fan of animals that have human names, like legit human names. Like I want it to be like, like a whole name, like I don't know what would be a good example. Like Daryl, like, exactly. Like, like Charles Jim Cook. or Stephen or you know, just like a funny Heinrich Gibson. So I, uh, I was like, all right. So we were thinking of names, and I was like, what about what if we had a dog named Raphael? And and I was like thinking to myself, like, oh, I'll call him Raphael. And she was like, in Spanish, that would be Rafa. You would say Rafa for Raphael. She fell in love with this name. She's like, this is the name of our future dog. So I was like, Aww. okay, we call an Uber to go visit our friends, and the driver's name is Raphael. Wow. And did you call him Rafa when you got in? You're like, hi, Rafa, you good boy. Thank you for picking us up. <laughs> we did not. We did not. So you got another one for me? So um, my mom and I have been planning uh, a walk around Lake Tahoe for about a year now. And we were supposed to be taking it um, in the summer of 2020. And uh, because of all this COVID realness, hashtag COVID realness, um, she, we had a, we had a tough conversation recently, like last week about how it's just not going to happen. She doesn't want to get on a plane. She's worried that she's going to have to quarantine if we go on this walk. And then she comes back because uh, right now I think, um, I think Nevada is on the list of like places that you have to quarantine if you go to that state and then go back to your state. Um, and I would be at risk too because I'd be flying home and then also flying to uh, Nevada. So it's just like the more we thought about it, it just doesn't really make sense to be trying to do it anyway. Um, and so I was really bummed about it, but we're, we're definitely going to make it happen. It might not be this year, but it, we are going to still do it. Um, and then later that night I was making dinner and Kyle plays this podcast that he likes, um, about bank investments. And it's, it's like nothing that interesting. Uh, but they were talking about how clear, how clear the water is at Lake Tahoe. And like, I don't even remember what the context was. It just stuck out in my ear. Like while I was cooking dinner, I heard them talking about Lake Tahoe and I'm like, what the, and they were talking about how beautiful the water is and like how it, it's become like a tourist attraction because it has some of the clearest, most healthy water in the world. And it was like, whoa, that was weird. <laughs> that's really nice. And now I kind of want to yeah. go to Lake Tahoe. That's a that's an that's a yeah. nice one. That's a sweet one. All right. Sting ding. Um, I'm playing Red Dead Redemption and it's like 1 a.m. And uh uh, there's, I'm going on this mission. I'm actually making an effort to play flat screen games because I love virtual reality. And I'm playing this mission um, at this new part of the game. And the mission is go investigate the quote-unquote grays. And I was like, whoa, go investigate the grays. That's, that's a little weird. Because I, I don't think there is any reference to aliens in this part right. of the game i mean if it is that would be 
cool, but to me that means something because we are yeah. investigating the greats. Sting ding. I like it. Sting ding. Okay, so my next one is a little weird. So um, my friend recently took this trip this trip out to the Pacific Northwest. Um, she was like going for some spiritual openness and just kind of like figuring out what she wants out of life. And she had some big decisions to make. So she took this trip, flew out to Seattle all by herself and like drove up along the coastline. Um, she stayed in Portland for a while in Forks and um, she was posting really great stuff on Instagram. And so when she got home, I was like, hey, can you call me? I want to talk about your trip. And so we had this nice conversation and she was talking about it. And and I told her, I was like, well, actually, the, the conversation came how do, I don't remember how it came up, but I, of course, like, you know, you just randomly, you're talking about funny stuff. And she and I were like random roommates in college and we became like best friends. It was very random and we're so grateful for it. Um, but I was telling her that I, I used to think that I was a beaver in my past life and she just thought it was the funniest thing. She was like laughing her ass off about that. And I'm like, no, seriously, I really do think I was a beaver in my past life. Did you and then really I was think telling, you were a beaver? I really did. Yeah. I, I used to have dreams about like, like, like chewing on trees and building houses and like I could never see that I was a beaver but I just wow. knew in my head like from my vision that I was a beaver I wasn't like human and wow. and I still get those dreams every once in a while but it's not as often anyway actually I do remember how we talked about this okay so let me backtrack she's she she took this this uh trip to the Pacific Northwest <laughs> and she was talking about Oregon and I was like I I've never been Dude. to Oregon but I would love to be in Oregon because when um when we were in like fourth grade we had to write a, a research report about one state and I picked Oregon and I ended up writing about like if I was to move there and where I'd live and like we had to do all this research about like the cost of living and stuff this is like fourth grade I'm telling you and we yeah so it was like a whole report about where we would live and and what life is like there and schools and stuff and um I might the town that I picked was Beaverton and so I asked her if she if she drove through Beaverton because it's like a suburb of Portland and she was like no I don't I don't think so and then I told her about how I thought I was a beaver in my past life and she was just laughing and laughing and then she was like oh my god this is so crazy because one of her big decisions um and her reason for going out there was to decide if she was going to move out of her house and so when she came back after the trip she decided yes the best thing is to move out of my house I'm going to find an apartment she found an apartment that earlier that day um she lives in des moines by the way uh which is the capital of iowa where i'm from and uh she found an apartment in a neighborhood called beaverdale in des moines and so she told me that and i was like what that is so crazy i have to write this down <laughs> so that's that's the beavers glorious. man first you asked she was her telling me about her trip she, i asked her if she passed beaverton oregon she said why? no why i told did you her bring why that up, though I told her why because I wrote the report about it in when fourth grade about kid. Oregon. So you randomly when I was telling a her kid. this story about being a little kid and because she was crossing through that area. Sort of. Right. Yes. And so I, because I've never, I've never been there and I still haven't, but I asked her if she drove through Beaverton because I wanted to know what it was like because I've never been there, but I wrote, I wrote a whole paper about it. And she said no. And then I, and then just to kind of like segue, I told her so that I used to think a. I was a beaver. Yeah. And then B was the dreams, which is so, so trippy. And <laughs> yeah, you're just like right. such a cute person already. Imagining you <laughs> as a beaver. Were you a female beaver? I I don't know. I don't were, think were I don't think from a beaver's perspective. Yeah, I was probably matter. a she beaver. It doesn't matter it what doesn't gender matter. you were you're as right. a beaver. You right. were a happy beaver. 
And then she's driving. Oh, yeah. Then she found an apartment in Beaverdale. Beaverdale, which is a neighborhood in in the suburb of Des Moines. Yeah. One day we have to go there. I have to go there. I have to go to Iowa. Wait, Beaverton or Beaverdale? You want to go to both Beaverdale? We're gonna have to go to both. <laughs> All I right. I want to go to both. Put it on the list. I want to go to anything <laughs> named Beaver or anything. Um, that sounds like don't <laughs> don't they sound so wholesome? Actually, though? there's another synchronicity in there. I I went to her wedding, and That's when we were going to her re- right when we were going to her reception, um, we were going into this like music venue where her reception was, and across the street there was a a waxing salon called the Pink Beaver, and I was like, <laughs> and so I'll never forget that, and that happened with her too. Dude, what what kind of Iowa shenanigans <laughs> are they coming up with over there? They're just like we're they gonna call it the pink beavers. Yeah, well, you know, you know that beaver is like a derogatory term for female anatomy. I know. I wasn't even going there because you have this wholesome, amazing past <laughs> life memory about being a beaver. I was like, this is so adorable. Right. I'm not gonna even talk about them as vaginas. <laughs> I used to tell people that all the time when I was a little kid. Well, this one's weird. Uh, I was just listening to uh, the MU podcast where they're discussing this whole Wayfair package conspiracy that's not really real. Have you Mm. heard about that? Yeah, I have. Well, the Wayfair conspiracy is not something I wanted you to be referencing in that synchronicity. So I'm glad it was just a knock. But um, So the Wayfair uh, thing was that People noticed online, and I don't. I can't really talk about it because I don't. I haven't researched it. But MU was discussing it. They were they were covering it. They were laughing about it. They were saying that it, like the internet discovered that Wayfair. There were a bunch of transactions made for random furniture and simple kind of uh, stuff that shouldn't be worth that much for like ten thousand dollars or like really high prices uh. for really like mundane things, and then. They were noticing like that in the, in the description of the nightstand or something was, uh, or I forget how it was related, but in the description was the name of like kids that had gone missing and like dates associated with them. So in the serial numbers and stuff. So that people That's were so conspiracy up. theorizing that Wayfair was like trafficking people and like then Human there was children. this image of uh, like little kids uh, like being delivered in furniture which all of it's absurd but like the weirdest thing about this whole conspiracy is why is there any connection between mysteriously expensive furniture and missing people because a lot of the uh, in a lot of the situations they're not even missing they're just kids that were found and are fine and somehow this stuff is called this. But it, maybe it was a code for something. Maybe not. Wayfair tried to brush it off. But that day that I'm listening to that podcast, I find myself uh, going to a building. And I had to bring up these two packages for this couple that I rented in their apartment. And I took a picture of both packages to show them that I had been a nice person and delivered it for them in their apartment. Yeah. And one of them was from Wayfair. At that very moment. Ah! <laughs> uh, all right, hit me. 
Uh, okay, so this one is a very simple one. Um, recently, I've been getting into this bad habit of like not hitting the stop button on my microwave because I, if I take food out early, like when I'm reheating it, I'll just leave it on the time that was left from reheating it. Um, and so I, I always get really confused when I come back in the kitchen and it's like 9 p.m. at night, but it, the, the, the clock says like 2.30 and I'm like, what the hell? And then I realize, oh, yeah, I got to hit off. So um, it happened to me again the other day. Uh, I was eating lunch and I had just reheated like some potatoes to add to what I made. And um, I took them out and I ate and I was looking at the clock and it said 158. And I was like, oh, that just that that must be the microwave time. I forgot to hit stop. So I went up and I hit stop and then it, it beeped. It went beep. And then it said 158. <laughs> and so the time was the same time as what was left over on the uh, on the countdown clock from when I was reheating my food. <laughs> Those are great. Did you and you wrote that down? <laughs> yeah, I wrote it down. That's amazing. Synchronicity. <laughs> These are you're getting a lot of like like punchy ones, like super super punchy. You're right. They're not. I, maybe, they're not it, super. Yeah, they're not significant necessarily but they're, they're not like they, weird they're sting dings. meaningful things but they're i really yeah. like them um thanks yours give me like a warm feeling about the universe like mine <laughs> don't quite do the same but <laughs> so in a way they do i mean listen uh and we are heading over to the infamous rendlesham forest case now do you know anything about the rendlesham forest case Mm-mm. Rendlesham Forest. Now no, here, this is one of the most famous UFO cases in the world. And it's one that I think UFO, like nuts and bolts people, cling to because this has to do with military personnel that respond to a, a report of a downed aircraft uh, in Rendlesham mm. Forest when they find a UFO in the forest. So it's an infamous UFO case. It's a great UFO case. It used to be one of my favorites, but then of course somebody brilliant like Nick Redfern comes along the scene and makes me question all kinds of things. So let me just say that, um, okay. Nick Redfern has a new theory in his new book, which has to do with it not being UFOs at all. It having to do with some sort of a government test. Now, I don't know because we haven't done the book yet, but some sort of a government test involving hallucinogenics and uh, um, holograms and some sort of a weird test, like psychological test they're performing on the military personnel on the base. Now, I don't know if they were experimenting with creating their own UFO like creating a UFO mythology or hoax right. within their own ranks. Like they were playing right. with their own people to see if they could get their own people to report something and to basically echo a, a UFO case. And I don't know if that's true, but um, when we talk about Rendlesham Forest now, we are going to think about that as a possibility because anytime that... Um, Look, anytime we have an interesting theory on something that isn't UFOs, we're going to have to consider it. We're going to have to do... Why is it called Rendlesham Forest? This is just what this place is called. It's an incident that occurred late on Christmas night. Uh, it's a, Oh, wait. So this guy wrote a book based on this case with a whole new theory behind it? 
Exactly. Like this is a real case. Oh, okay, okay. I'm following. Rhinolsham Forest uh, case occurred late on Christmas night in 1980. It was Boxing Day when strange lights were seen in Rendlesham Forest, a forest near mm. Ipswich. The many witnesses were all United States Air Force personnel based at the joint U.S. Air Force-NATO twin bases at RAF Bentwaters, RAF Woodbridge, and Suffolk. We already just covered a story that took place there. Um, yeah. And this is in 1980. I think this is before those stories that we just covered. This is December 26th, uh, when duty personnel reported seeing lights so bright they feared an aircraft had crashed. Three patrolmen from the 81st Security Police Squadron show up on the scene. Jim Penniston, John Burroughs, Ed Cabinsag. And I apologize, gentlemen, if I didn't say that correct. Uh, <laughs> they see... A small metal craft moving through the trees. Peniston gets close enough to see strange markings on the side of the craft, which he likened to Egyptian hieroglyphics. He makes some rough sketches, which appear in this great book, and um, it's a it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing, and basically they report it immediately to their higher ups. One of their higher-ups is a Lieutenant Colonel Charles Halt. Charles Halt was extremely skeptical, but he had the witnesses write up the official reports. They sketch um, what they'd seen. He does his job. Halt does his job, even though he doubts every second of the story. And uh, two nights later, um, Halt is at a social function when the young airmen burst in and run up to the colonel and say, sir, it's back. Oh, God. Halt looks confused. He says, what? What's back? And they say, the UFO, sir, the UFO, sir, the UFO is back. Halt then goes back to Rendlesham Forest and has his own sight that occurs. Yeah. So here's how this beauty of a story goes down. She describes it, and then we get deep into it. Um, so we have this from the perspective of James Penniston, um, and then we have this from the perspective of Holt. So, and who's James? And all of this is documented. So James Penniston is one of the three officers that show up the first time, and Holt is the off is the colonel who shows up the second time. He's the one gotcha. in charge who shows up the second time. First time they run into it. This includes James Penniston. He says, we approached it on foot. It was a silhouetted triangular craft about nine feet long and six and a half feet wide. It was fully intact. It was sitting in a small clearing inside the woods. Included our pictures of this. Then there's, they feel a static electricity which made your hair stand up and dance on your skin. Mm. But there was no sound at all accompanying the craft. Nothing in my training prepared me for what we were witnessing, said James Penniston. Again, we have no help from uh, the government as far as what to do if you run into this kind of thing. The men themselves had no idea what to do. 
After my right. first walk around the craft, Peniston says, astonishment and awe overwhelmed me. All one side of the craft were three symbols that measured about three inches high and two and a half feet across. These symbols were pictorial in design. The largest symbol was a triangle, which was centered in the middle of the others. They were etched into the surface of the craft. I put my hand on the craft and it was warm to the touch. The surface was Whoa. smooth like glass, but it had a quality of metal. I felt a constant low voltage running through my hand and moving through my forearm. Roughly 45 minutes passed until a light from the craft began to intensify. Burroughs and I then took a defensive position and moved away from the craft as it lifted off the ground without any noise at all and maneuvered through the trees and shot out at an unbelievably rate, unbelievable rate of speed. It was gone in the wow. blink of an eye, but they had 45 minutes to touch this thing, to look at right. it. And it was a little craft, Sydney. It wasn't like a football field craft. It was like a little, it was like the sports model. It was, it was small. Right. And they could see these. Like a go-kart. They could see these designs on it. They got to draw the designs. You know, wow. this doesn't seem like an intentional thing. This just seems like no. they happen to show up and it just happens to be there. And, and whoever was inside of it was having issues or whatever was inside of it was asleep or having issues or something. After turning all our weapons and signing off, Bros and I went back later and discovered broken branches scattered at the landing site. It appeared they had been forced down to the ground when the craft landed. There were scorch marks on the trees facing the site. But most importantly, we discovered three indentations in the ground, marks left by the UFO landing gear in three quarters, corners of a triangle. I was relieved to find proof. Halt the, wow. halt the uh, deputy base commander um, of RAF Bentwaters who was notified of this that night and was notified of it when, when it happened again. Um, so Halt, uh, Halt makes a report about this. Even though he never, he never really believed in it before, he makes a report of what he saw when he's called back and they say it's back. Yeah. Voices of the men as the UFO approaches. I see it too. They see it again. It's back again. It's coming this way. No, there's no doubt about it. This is weird. It looks like, what does it look like? An eye winking at you. And it almost burns your hmm. eyes. And, and now we're observing what appears to be a beam coming down in the ground. One object still hovering over the Woodbridge base, beaming down. They describe what looks like a bright red-orange oval with a black center in the forest. The Eye of Sauron. They don't say Ooh. it looks like the Eye of Sauron, but it's literally an eye. It looks like an eye, they say. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it reminded, it's, and, it, and I, don't, I don't think it, it doesn't sound like the craft that they found, but this thing is lit up. So we don't know. We don't well, know. we have to backstep. We have to say which, which military officer had the ring on. You're right. Who had the ring? Um, it reminded me of an eye and appeared as though it were blinking. It maneuvered horizontally through the trees with occasional vertical movement zigzagging around the trunks as if under intelligent control. Was it under intelligent like control or was it an intelligence itself? I mean, it sounds goofy. It sounds like a, a, like a giant eye floating around. 
Um, yeah. Here's an excerpt from the tape recorder as I watched with some agitation. This is Halt, Colonel Halt and his men in the forest. Now we're not, we don't have the recording, but uh, Colonel Halt. We just bumped into the first light that we've seen. We're about 150 to 200 yards from the site. Everything else is just deathly calm. There's no doubt about it. There's some kind of strange flashing red light ahead. Yeah, Sergeant Neville says, it's yellow. And Halt says, I saw a yellow tinge in it too. Weird. It appears to be making a little bit this way. Neville says, yes, sir. And Halt says, it's brighter than it's been. It's coming this way. It's definitely coming this way. Surgeon Ball says, pieces are shooting off it. Ball says, it's about 11 o'clock. There's no doubt about it. This is weird. Then when it approached, it receded silently into the open field to the east. We watched in amazement for a minute or two, and more was recorded on the tape. Halt says, strange. Let's approach the edge of the woods at that point. Can we do it without the lights? Let's do it carefully. Come on. Okay. We're looking at the thing. We're, we're probably about two to 300 yards away. It looks like an eye winking at you. It's still moving from side to side, and we put the star scope on it. It's sort of hollow center, and it has a dark center. It, it, it's like a, a pupil. It's like a pupil of an eye looking at you, winking. And the flash is so bright to the star scope, it, it burns your eye. And suddenly the object exploded into five white lights and then quickly disappeared. We went into the field and looked for residue, but nothing was found, Halt says in his report, when we observed several objects with multiple red, green, and blue lights in the northern sky, which changed in shape from elliptical to round and moved rapidly at sharp angles. Several other objects were seen to the south, and one approached at high speed and then stopped overhead. It sent down a concentrated white beam, a small, dense pencil-like beam, like a laser beam, to near where I was standing. It illuminated the ground about 10 feet from us, and we just stood there wondering whether it was a signal. Hmm. Imagine these military officers standing like they have no control over what's happening. There's no force field around them. There's nobody there to save them or help them or do anything. And this thing is just dancing. It's just performing. It's just expanding. It's not even aggressive. I mean, that's the, that's, I think that's, I have to say, I think that's one of the great things about these UFO sightings, that they could just, I mean, imagine if it was aggressive, they just incinerated everybody that it came across. We we wouldn't be able to hear the story because, yeah, those people would be gone. Or (laughs) we would know because every UFO sighting would end in tragedy and it would eventually just get out. But no, these things are mysterious. It's performing these weird it's it's really crazy, the Rendlesham Ford case. The officers on the first night find the craft. It, it's more tactical. It's more nuts and bolts. They see language, what looks like some sort of pictorial language on it. The next night, they see this eye, you know, and then they see the eye burst into all these lights. And, and this phenomenon was also seen by the storage area where they saw an object send down beams of light near or close to the weapon storage area. Halt reports. Sometime later, he says, 
he finds out that my new boss found my tape and unbeknownst to me, this is a colonel saying this, my new boss found the tape, unbeknownst to me, started playing it at cocktail parties. Hmm. Laughing at the sound of Halt and his men at Rendlesham Forest. Laughing. Like the best entertainment your security clearance can give you is to laugh at your fellow (laughs) officers for... And he heard this firsthand or like someone else told him about it? No, I think he just heard that his boss was making fun of him. And imagine a a colonel, a colonel, a decorated colonel and his men showing up and and they're the butt of a joke. And that that ties into the whole taboo aspect of this. Ties into the whole taboo aspect that we're going to continue to cover on this episode. And the Rendlesham Forest case is weird because then the the men were, it was later reported that these men uh, were drugged by agents that told them not to talk about the UFO events. They were, first they had to talk about it and and record, and they, they wanted, these men wanted to know everything they had to say. And then they were given drugs such as sodium pentanol, uh, which is called the truth serum. And they were brainwashed. Uh, They were administered with hypnosis, drugs, interrogations. They were basically intimidated, even though they were already kind of traumatized by what had happened. They were further intimidated by um, their own people. That's awful. We're going to go to Chile, um, where... uh, where we kind of get a little flavor of the way the Chilean, the Chilean uh, Air Force deals with the sightings. Deals with the sightings, yeah. Yeah. That's a, a great choice of words there. Get a little flavor in Chile. In Chile? Have you been to Chile? Do you have any Chile stories? I've never been south of Arizona. That's like, I don't know why that's like poetry to my ears. Like, you're just like, I've never been south of Arizona. Actually, that's that's a lie. I've been to Punta Cana. So I've been to the Dominican Republic. So I've never been south of DR. But yes, it sounds nice. So it's not poetry to my ears anymore because it's a a bold-faced lie. I've never been south of Punta Cana. Isn't it like weird this? though? Because I usually say like I haven't traveled much, but then I'm like, well, I have been to Puerto Rico, and I have been to Colombia, and I have been to Toronto. I have been to Montreal. It's like what those places don't count. It's like I and I want to go back to all those places because I'd love yeah. to see, them, see a little more. Um, That's count. That counts. Counts to me. It counts. So Chile. I had never been out of the United States until I moved to New York. So. Really? Oh, so your travels, yeah. your travels, have you only, well, you've been to I, England? I've been to England, I've been to France, I've been to Belgium, the Netherlands, Greece, Whoa. Italy. Um, that might be it, actually. Did you, were you, uh, a, or did you work for an airline? How did you, how did you do this? <laughs> I can see you being no, a really, really No, I mean, they really weren't all awesome, in one trip. What do they call those, stewardesses? Yeah, stewardesses. Yeah, would you? That would be fun, actually. I always thought that would be kind of a fun job until the coronavirus happened, and until I became afraid of flying. Right, right, yeah. I've actually thought about becoming a pilot because I have really, really good eyesight, and um, 
I was Jet just Blue about offering... to ask you about that. Really? Wait, is why? that a synchronicity? Yeah, that's a synchronicity. Why were you going to ask me about my eyesight? <laughs> no, I was going <laughs> to ask you if you ever have a desire to be a pilot. That was literally that the next so question in my mind. I was. Yeah, about no, to I, say I have. That. I, I would like to be a stewardess, but I think I would actually be a better pilot because I have I have better than perfect vision, and um, I think that would be kind of cool. And and yeah, I think I'd be really good at. It. So Chile <laughs> set up an agency uh, with civil aviation department. So instead of them having, so he, the question is posed by uh, Keen is where do you set up this agency that deals with UFOs? You can have it as a division of your space program. You can have it as a division of your Air Force. You could have it as a division of your FAA. Um, Mm -hmm. Chile sets it up as a division of their FAA because uh, on a very basic level, we're dealing with uh, something that could endanger pilots. They could distract pilots. They could, um, you know, it's just something you need to be aware of. I mean, if a plane can knock into birds and crash and, and or or get in trouble that way uh it can also right. it can also there's a lot of reported near collisions with ufos and or U, uaps as we're calling them now so there is there is a case in chile where one of it's one of the most important civil aviation cases from 1988 uh and it shows unidentified flying objects can be a danger for air operations uh which is why chile uh, had this, um, took this so seriously. Um, this is a case uh, relayed to us by, listen, listen to this dude's name. His name is Captain <laughs> Bravo. Captain Bravo. I love it. So this case uh, involves a, get this guy's name, Captain Rodrigo Bravo Garrido. All right. Captain good. Bravo. He's the youngest of our contributors, Keen says. He's the only one in active military duty at the time of her writing her book. Uh, but this takes place in 1997. Finally, we're out of the 80s, Sydney. He ended up kind of getting way, way more involved in the UFO uh, phenomenon for his country and everything. But this is a case he relays um, where uh, he, he discusses that one of the most important uh, civil aviation cases that occurs in 1988 um, was basically an unidentified flying object um, occurs that shows that this is a real danger to people who are operating in the skies. This is not just some fantasy or something that we can take as a joke. Right. Uh, a Boeing 737 pilot on a final approach to the runway at Tupal Airport in Puerto Mont City, south of Santiago, suddenly encounters a large white light surrounded by green and red. The light was moving toward the airplane, coming straight at it, and the pilot has to make a steep turn to the left in order to avoid a collision. The phenomenon was observed by the control tower personnel. So imagine how how goofy is that? Like, who's, who's being goofy there? Is the... Is the is the UFO being goofy or is 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 it doing this on purpose to mess with? Yeah, somebody? it sounds like like Santa Claus or something. It sounds like <laughs> a drunk driver or something. Um, more recently, in the year two thousand, the crew of a Chilean plane 
from the aviation branch of the Army flying south of Santiago observed a long cigar-shaped object, a brilliant gray. I really like the idea of a cigar-shaped craft. I think there's something to those. Those, those I think, are important crafts. And they flew parallel to the right side of the aircraft for two minutes. It went, it was, so for two minutes, it was parallel to the uh, Chilean plane. It was very close to it. And then it disappeared at an extremely high speed along the mountain coast, just like the Tic Tac story. Um, Except in this situation, it pulled up next to it. Uh, The passengers on the flight also observed the object. In this unusual case, the military aviation crew members confirmed the reality of the UFO through careful observation and detailed reporting. Now, one of the things that Captain Bravo um, talks about uh, that he and, and the great thing is you kind of get every you kind of get every commander in, in a different country and in a different sort of. Uh, in a different world, kind of dealing with a lot of the same issues because we don't have yeah. we don't have this unified UN organization of countries sharing information. So you have these you right. have these amazingly qualified, brilliant a lot of the time uh, Air Force guys or colonels, and and they're kind of scratching their heads, thinking, how do we study this thing? if we're not communicating with each other. And one of the issues is the wide variety of shapes, structures, colors, movements of UFOs. They're definitely not easy to keep track of. I mean, it would be one thing if there was just three of them, but there's so many different kinds reported. Um, And uh, next we're gonna head into Brazil. Um, Brazil has a really, really terrific case. This is relayed to us by Brigadier General Jose Carlos Pereira. Uh, and this, this is really great, actually, because we have an image of this one, too. So he says, noon on January 16, 1958, a retired Brazilian Air Force officer, Captain Jose Teobaldo Viegas, and Amflar Vieira Filho, chief of a group of submarine explorers were the first among many officers, sailors, and others to sight an unusual object from the deck of a Brazilian Navy training ship. Almirio uh, Barauna, a professional submarine photographer on board, managed to take a series of successful pictures over nearby Trindad Isle. Despite the commotion on deck caused by a throng of excited observers, Captain Viegas later stated the first view was that of a disc shining with a phosphorescent glow, which even in daylight appeared brighter than the moon and about the size of a full moon. Ooh, wow. It followed its path across the sky, changing to a tilted position. Its real shape was clearly outlined against the sky that of a flattened sphere encircled at the equator by a large ring or platform. Uh, that's an interesting way to describe what I'm picturing. Just a UFO shape. <laughs> like so, a sunny side up egg. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's weird. It's it's like, uh, I think it, what does he say? He says, um, it changes to a tilted position. Right. That that reminds me of what Bob Lazar describes as how these UFOs operate. They they go belly up um, mm. in order to like create their gravitational field. 
why don't we take a look now? I want you to open up the uh, file of the Trindade Island photographs are called. Oh, this is like the island of Trinidad. Is this Trinidad? Is it just Trinidad? Am I crazy? I mean, the way they spelled it is funny because Trinidad doesn't have an E on it. But I don't know if it's the same place. I don't think it is. Yeah, here's what it says. Trinidad is a small deserted rocky island located in the middle of the South Atlantic Ocean. That's, yeah, that's Trinidad. No, no, no. Trinidad is not a deserted rocky island in the middle of nowhere. Trinidad is a real place where people are from. Uh, right. So, so it this does, is, well, okay. So this is Trinidad, another island. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, Trinidad doesn't have the E. Trinidad. I'm typing them both in. Listen, it's an adventure to pronounce stuff, and I'm on this adventure with you. I'm not. I'm not going to pretend like I know how to pronounce everything. Or anything. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I, I pride myself in being able to pronounce stuff. But, yeah, it's just I've never heard of this island. Yeah, this is like out in the middle of the of the Atlantic Ocean. It's not it's nowhere near land. And it's just like rocky cliffs. Um, it's an archipelago. So where where is it? It's like literally out in the center of the Atlantic Ocean between South America and Africa. Yeah, Trinidad and Tobago are different. Those are like north of South America, off to the right. Dude, how many crazy places do alien craft and like break off civilizations just like just have? Like how many places do they just have? Or or are they right in front of our faces? Like everywhere right. or or i just yeah. imagine how many places are just uninhabitable by humans under the ocean right like random islands or i don't know like there's just a bunch of places where you know we we think everything is so um you know everything has been conquered and a lot has but there's a lot of wilderness out there still that's in the middle of nowhere so let's take a look at them it's it's not exciting. It's not as exciting as we would hope. It's just like a it's a it's barely it's barely satisfying. But it's something Yeah, it that, like it's like a black and white photo. It kind of looks like if someone had like a laceration on their arm and it's in black and white and it's very grainy. <laughs> That's what it looks like. It looks like. like a white a white castle burger flying through the air. Ew. Um, there's actually more pictures down below that are like halfway down the web web page, and they're they're better. They're from further away, so you can kind of get the idea of the image better. And it just looks like your classic UFO that you would see like in an old black and white movie where it's got the the ring. Yeah. Kind of looks like Jupiter, and then it's like an oval shaped planet. Yeah, I mean, it looks like a little like a little flying planet. Swatsa, little, little flying Jupiter. Little flying Jupiter. That's exactly what it looks like. And, I mean, it just goes to show you, their description of this is majestic. It followed the path across the sky, changing to a tilted position. Its real shape was clearly outlined against the sky. It was that of a flattened sphere encircled at the equator by a large ring or platform. It looked brighter than the moon and about the size of the full moon. 
I mean, I can only imagine what this looked like in person. And here you have a, yeah. a Brazilian Navy training ship, you know, out there in the middle of nowhere. And again, is this accidental? Is are they just right. seeing something? Where where like you said, they're they're this craft is going about its business and it has some routine to to run. Or is this all part of the plan of like this kind of disclosure that's happening from their perspective? And and the Rogan podcast with George Knapp, one of the things that I love that they discuss is this concept of like they are in control of what we see. And I don't think that's yeah. always the case because you and I have covered everything with everything from time storms to um, to UFOs and and a lot of the stuff we're covering today, especially in Leslie Keen's book, they seem to be just these goofy interactions between us and them, and we're just like right. kind of stumbling in its way. I mean, I don't know what would be the equivalent to humans, like what what. What like lower life form do we stumble upon that we're we're not too interested in? But I think it's deeper with us. I think that they're in a lot of ways it's all part of the plan how things are unfolding. They're they're giving us little bits at a time, and I think that you know they want us to learn little bits at a time. I mean everything that we're learning, everything that people have learned before us, they're all uh, things that I think have slowly been released. To, to help us grow and, and face the reality, which is that we're totally not alone. Yeah. We're not alone here. We never were. But do you really think that they would want us to know about them? Like that they'd be like, yeah, you guys should know. We're just going to slowly piece it together for you. <laughs> I mean, I. It just all seems too coincidental to be purposeful. Like it's it. It's not always. Yeah, to purposeful. me, they just seem like organic sightings. It's not like, oh, to hey, me, look, here I am. To me, this is not all one. It's not all one thing. It's not no. all one. It's not for me. This is not uh, like I'll just cut right through and I'll just say this is not all one entity. This is not all one species of alien or interdimensional right. being. These are a bunch of random different things, whether it's uh, different species, organic things. There could be AI out there from the future. There could be future humans. There's there could be interdimensional jellyfish. I mean, there's all kinds of things. And puppies. That are popping through. Yeah. So what do we call those? Space puppies? I don't remember what we call them. Space puppies. There, there are all kinds of uh, things happening. When you have something like a wave, now that's a different story because that's pretty much like a fireworks show and you're putting it on for massive amounts of people, thousands of people over the course of years. Now that's, to me, that sounds like it's orchestrated somehow. Something random like these sightings, I'm not so sure. And I'm not so sure when they're almost colliding with uh, other places. And honestly, if, if, if the governments, if governments have craft, I mean, there has to be mistakes made where, where yeah. I mean, there doesn't have to be, but, but you can postulate that there have been mistakes or they run out of fuel or they crash into something or, or just something goes wrong because things can go wrong sometimes and in, in anyone's life. And, and maybe aliens, you know, are still susceptible to the goofy laws of the universe. And that means that we end up with craft, you know, um, so we're still in Brazil. 
And we have a Colonel Osiris Silva, president of a Brazilian oil company, and his pilot, Commander uh, Alcir Pereira da Silva. I'm so good with these Brazilian names. They were flying <laughs> an executive Zingu jet near Pocos del Caldas, heading to Sao Jose dos Campos, when radars in different locations showed 21 UFOs in the sky from Sao What? Paulo to Rio de Janeiro. This occurs in May in 1986. Um, And so you have a Brazilian oil company guy and his pilot who happened to, they happen to be in the sky when 21 UFOs are in the sky. Sylvia and his pilot Jeez. saw one of them. They, they, see, they see one of them and they say, okay, let's chase it. So they chase this UFO for 30 minutes and they see it. It's a fast moving, bright red orange light. It sounds like something in a close encounters that appeared to jump from point to point. Boom, boom, boom. And they weren't able to gain on wow. it. And they eventually had to give up their pursuit because of course we're beholden to fuel. We're beholden to time. Yeah. And, and, and we, we don't have infinite energy to spend on, on aerial pursuit and games. Um, listen, it's, it's clear that this stuff is, uh, is not man-made because of the way it jumps around. Um, right. and, uh, and, you know, radar, one thing that I did want to bring up definitely is that radar, um, let's see if I can find it. Radar. Radar is funny. So, uh, one thing I've learned from Leslie's book is that radar is funny. Uh, radar is inadequate. And that's one of the things that concerns a lot of these experts is that they know that their radar systems are not equipped to deal with this kind of stuff. And now I'm right. going to get into a story, which is our, which is our biggest story of the show. Uh, it's, let's just skip right to the tasty bits. Are you ready? All right. Remember Take I there. said there was a Japanese baked Alaska in the sky? Yes. Whatever that means. Do explain. Have you ever had a baked Alaska? I, are you talking about salmon? Because that's all I'm picturing. <laughs> You're saying Alaska, like the state, right? Baked Alaska? No, it's like a, it's a dessert. It's a crazy dessert that was popular back in the 50s and 60s, I think. Or maybe even before that. It's like some sort of meringue, dude. Picture this. It's a meringue that's like shaped in the size of like, it looks like a freaking UFO. And inside, oh. inside is ice cream. So it's oh shoot! It's, Wait, it's making me think of like mochi ice cream now. This is making me totally need to go get ice cream when our show. I know, is over. right? Like my mouth is watering. It oh was National God. Ice Cream Day the other day. Dude, there's no there's no reward like anything that we can give ourselves after a good episode. So you know, I just make a margarita. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We are going to hop over to a case that I love. It's uh, a man named John J. Callahan is responsible for giving us the, the, the real details of this story. Um, Mr. Callahan. And Callahan was the head of the FAA's Accidents, Evaluations, and Investigations Division. It was an extremely high-level position. 
he was one rank below federal positions appointed by Congress. And so much of so much of this book had kind of shows you the the layers of command, right? Who's under who, yeah. and and who has this special division, and the government has you know this, and this, and you know CIA has that, and it's like really really trippy. Like then you have Air Force combined with all these things. So, but then you have these. I love it. I love it when we have these these guys, these humans that are just um, decorated and responsible. And they're responsible for so much. And they just so happen to stumble upon a UFO situation. And early in 1987, uh, John was unexpectedly faced with the problem of managing a huge UFO case. It was a dramatic 30-minute sighting by three Japan airline pilots of a giant UFO over Alaska. The baked Alaska. The baked Alaska. By the uh, way, I looked up this picture, and you are absolutely right. It's meringue that's browned over a piece of cake that has ice cream on top. <laughs> it's the most absurd thing, but I just, it doesn't. It looks like it's a, a million calories. It, to me, this should still exist. I want to go to I a place agree. that sells this. Or that looks like something you'd get at like a Denny's or something. Like yeah, totally. Denny's secret menu or something. Dude, it takes six and a half hours to make. <laughs> How can ice cream like survive this process? Because you got to make the cake underneath. Right. You just leave the ice cream be. And then somehow when you're ready, you put it all together. You probably bake the cake, put the ice cream on it, put it in the freezer, let it like really, really harden up. Get the meringue ready, and then you take it out of the freezer, put the meringue on it, and put that shit in the oven. And, like, the meringue protects the ice cream, so it just, like, browns it on top. Or you could just use a torch, like you should, with meringue, and then that wouldn't melt the ice cream at all. Do you watch any cooking shows? Uh, No, not really. Not, like, on purpose, but... Dude, my girlfriend and I uh, are obsessed... With cooking shows, we we scream at the TV like we're watching like a sports game. How ridiculous really? is that? Yeah, we get super <laughs> excited about people winning, and we talk about like the cake, and we talk about what we think about what's going on. I have um, a lot of friends who are obsessed with yeah, like Cake Wars and all those shows. I adore but the food shows. I don't get into they're them. just they're just super chill. You know, there's yeah. no. There's no storyline. Actually, it's the most amazing of storylines. There's a beginning, middle, and an end. There's a climax. And someone gets their heart broken because they lose. Of course. Um, All right. So going back to our Baked Alaska. John J. Callahan, uh, you're about to read. He says, when I was the division chief of the Accidents, Evaluations, and Investigations Division of the FAA in Washington from 1981 to 1988, during this extraordinary event... I was asked not to talk about what I saw. Now, John ends up discussing his story after his retirement. He's just one of the many um, decorated uh, military officers that Mm -hmm. decides that the right thing to do is to share the truth with the the country. So this is his story from his account. This is the greatest story of, of, of our bunch here. So early January 1987, when I received a call from Air Traffic Quality Control Branch in the FAA's Alaskan Regional Office, the media wanted information on a UFO chase 
a UFO that chased a Japanese 747 across the Alaskan sky for 30 minutes on November 7th, 1986. Wait, so the UFO chased the airplane? It wasn't the other way around? Exactly. For 30 minutes. Creepy. Keep in mind, so many of the cases that we've discussed happen in minutes or moments. Right, right. They're yeah, not happening for 30 time. minutes. 30 minutes is, is this solid. Is this a commercial plane, too? 747? Is that like a... It was a 747. Uh, it's Japan Airlines Flight 1628. It's a cargo yeah, jet. So, it's uh, a cargo okay. jet with a pilot, a co-pilot, and a flight engineer. What do those people have in common, Sydney? Uh, they're Good all eyesight. extremely... Yes, exactly. They're all extremely capable... Flyers. They know yeah. they know what's out there. They know how to identify a plane. They know how to identify things that are supposed to be out there. They were north of Anchorage. It was just after 5 p.m. The captain, Kenju Tarauchi, described seeing a giant round object with colored lights flashing and running around it, which was much bigger than his 747. As a big as an aircraft carrier, his crew, uh, Takanori, Tamifuji and Yoshio Tsukuda both saw it too. At one point, two objects appeared to stop directly in front of the 747, and the captain said they were shooting off lights, illuminating the cockpit and emitting heat that he could feel even on his face. The objects then flew in level flight with the 747. Later, the captain made a turn to evade the UFO, but it flew alongside the jet, keeping at a constant distance. Teruchi was able to estimate the size of the largest spaceship, as he called it, to be the size of an aircraft carrier because he had it on its radar, and the aircraft radar has range marks. This happened over the course of 31 minutes, and then the UFO jumped miles in seconds. One moment, Teruchi says, uh, it's over here at 12 o'clock at 8 miles. When the radar antenna goes by, we see a target there. Ten seconds later, it's suddenly six or seven miles behind him. It's going from eight miles out in front of the 747 to six, seven miles in the back. Only a few seconds and one sweep of the radar scope. The technology was unthinkable, Tirauchi says. Yeah, that's like 14 miles in 10 seconds. The UFOs appeared to have control over both inertia and gravity. They're in charge of their surroundings. It's unfathomable. Yeah, like, I, I mean, can't even wrap my head around this. Imagine training all your life and, and to be in the sky. And, and you're so responsible, I'm sure, in that position. And you're so careful. And you're, you're, your whole life is about being really careful and measuring things and reading the skies. And then you see something that doesn't follow any of our rules. Yeah. You have three reliable witnesses who know how to recognize aircraft. I mean, it had, if it had been a secret military exercise, the pilots would have been informed of such, and they wouldn't have wasted their time. Uh, they wouldn't have wasted their 31 minutes evading and reporting a UFO, and the FAA would not have bothered to conduct interviews following the event. Uh, right. The witnesses literally were qualified enough to eliminate all other known explanations. This is what you say when you have something in your... In your, in your way, you say, hey, do you have traffic at my altitude? And the controller panics, looks at the scope, and says, no, we don't. It's a UFO, because he could see it so clearly. But who believes in right. UFOs? That is the type of attitude that air traffic control had at the time. 
our man John synchronizes the voice tapes with the radar data, and he asks them uh, to basically get on a plane and bring all the evidence to him. He wants to see it. He asks the FAA automation specialist to plot the radar targets. Hardware and software engineers put together a large chart that showed every target along the flight of the 747 during its reported encounter with the UFO. They hung it on a wall and they made a basically a big chart of this UFO and what it did in 30 minutes. So then John and these experts have a meeting. Uh, the, U- the CIA gets, gets wind of this. And the CIA is hilarious. They're like the comic relief of this, of this film. Uh, the that we're calling the Japanese baked Alaska in the sky because the CIA who, who called it that by the way was it you who called it that I just called it that I just like See, the I'm just a big fan of imagining baked Alaskas so so you already knew what a baked Alaska was before yeah. before this came up oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like who came up with that crazy name of course it was David so the C- <laughs> I'm just it's my fantasy right now for some reason I bet it's not even good. But I don't like good. meringue, so I mean, yeah, the idea of it's nice. Yeah, meringue is weird. Maybe that's why it didn't succeed into our modern times, right? Because the texture is right. too weird for. How did you hear about this though? Where did you first hear about a baked Alaska? I think I saw it in like an old movie. It's in a lot of old movies. The, you'll that's see so like funny. you'll see this like dessert out there, like just laying out there, probably because <laughs> it looks cool on camera. The CIA says, according to them. Uh, listen, you can't see it on the radar because it's not there. This never happened. And so John says, who are you going to believe? Your lying eyes or the government? Both the radar and the manual controller observed the primary target. Yeah. Military controllers also viewed the primary target on the radar, identified it as a double primary, which means it was large enough to be more than one aircraft. And, and John says... What do we have if we don't have anything? And the technician says, my religion forbids me to believe in UFOs. Wow. And John says, I don't know. Fine. Right. <laughs> like, do we have to shut this down? Can we just say that something, something happened? Something happened. Sometimes when things are scary and there's no way to explain it, you just deny that it ever happened. And that makes you feel better. The FAA people were brought into a room where technical engineers, hardware and software specialists all got together and uh, they were all like, they were like basically like high school math coaches having a chit chat together. They were spitting out questions about the scientific details. They were super excited. Um, They were asking like each other what happened, what happened. And then at the end, one of the three CIA people there said, this event never happened. We were never here. We're confiscating all this data. You are sworn to secrecy. And this, get this. They say, if we were to tell the American public there are UFOs, they would panic. Total. It's, they're not wrong. (laughs) Well, no, I think it's. It's disproven by the way the French handled this. It's disproven by the way the Belgian government handled this. It's, it's yeah. I mean, if we're talking about on an individual level, if, if a human being is capable of handling the fact that not only are we not alone, but we have not been alone for a long time. Imagine if we just opened up the, imagine if Sydney, I just said to you, look, I have a little coloring book uh, to show you like, 
all the species that are out here. There's aliens over there. There's aliens here. There's an alien that's actually living inside of your body right now. For some reason, ah! he likes to have half his face in your stomach. Don't ask. And all this wow. stuff is everywhere. Um, I mean, you're gonna you're gonna go through some stuff. But I think that's a bullshit answer at this point to say uh, the 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 country would panic because when it comes down to it. The reason that this stuff is being kept secret, the reason that it's being treated the way it's being treated, and we don't have enough time to go into all that stuff here, but the, the reason that it's being treated this way is simply because um, we have too much to gain and uh, by, by hoarding any knowledge that we have on a subject. We have too much mm -hmm. to gain by if anybody gets close to this technology, if anybody even gets a a small fraction of an understanding of how to wield this kind of technology, how to wield this craft, how to deal with any of it. Imagine the power that gives you. I mean, and right. these, are, these are secret clearances within secret clearances. Uh, one thing I want to say before I wrap up with some of those ideas is that, and I love this, I love this, I love this, that why, why is the radar not adequate? for UFOs. And right. John explains, UFOs appear to have no transponder. They're basically too big for the automation system to be considered an aircraft. So the radar thinks they're weather. They're so big, the craft, oh. the radar thinks they're weather. Or they're too fast for the radar to get hit on, or they're out of range. So they're That's too- That's what I would think, too fast. Yeah. Too fast or they're too large and they're seen as weather. So the UFO was painted um, as an extremely large primary target. So the FAA computer simply treated it as weather. But sometimes they're not huge, like too big to look they're like They're not always huge, but they're too fast. Right. They they're blip. so fast, though. Well, that's but also the thing. about this like electromagnetic field thing that we talked about. I feel like that could affect radar as well, don't you think? It definitely does. It can and yeah. it does. And you know what? A lot of the time it does pop up on radar. But what are you going to do? What are you going to say? Right. That's why that, <laughs> that uh, air traffic controller was like, no, it's a UFO. It's an unidentified object. We can see it on the radar. Um, but are these systems, if we're going to, let's say we did the opposite of, of what we're used to doing. We're actually going to look out for uh, these craft, we're gonna we're gonna warn our pilots. You know, we're not gonna treat it like a joke, and we're gonna warn our pilots. And we're gonna say, okay, listen, this is what happens. If you see, we don't care what it is. We're not getting into extraterrestrial theories. No one knows what this stuff is necessarily, or or, or we're not gonna get into that. We're just gonna tell you. If you see this, here's a radar system that'll track these things. If you see one of these, this is what you do. You know, yeah. God forbid you started firing on one of these things. And, and you had like passengers or anything like that. I mean, just not being prepared for situations like this could be disastrous. And so we discussed before, we discussed who knows about this? What, what kind of a government agency would know about this? How is it possible that this exists? And Leslie Keen, I thought she wasn't going to cover this. I thought she wasn't going to go over like, like uh, the secret deep state. I thought she was, I thought, I honestly thought she was naive enough to be like, well, everything's out in the open. And she, she spends a lot of time talking about how the governments are just inefficient and this stuff just, we just don't, we just like the Hudson Valley wave. A lot of that was just like, oh, the government doesn't care and we're in denial right. and we all have the brain freeze. 
you know, uh, that um, Heineck was talking about and blah, 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 blah. But that's not true because um, there are there are some military commanders that have tried to find out what where this information is stored and they hit walls. And so we have Commander Will Miller has gone on the record while keeping specifics confidential. Um, he ran the U.S. Space Command and U.S. Southern Command in its International Counter Drug Operations Joint Interagency Task Force East. He was an expert in the Special Contingency Operations. Miller held a top secret clearance with sensitive SCI. This is important. Sensitive compartmented information access. Mm. SCI access is access to sensitive information that is above top secret clearance information. Above it? What's so you above have, top secret? You have security clearance that's top secret. You have SCI. So uh, these officers uh, are postulating, like, where, where could these factions be? Yeah. Who has control of this stuff? Who's allowed to see this stuff? And, and where are they? What are they? Who's paying for them? How do you find them? And you know, the creepiest thing for me is imagining that they're people just like us. They go to the store, yeah. they get groceries, except they like are involved in the craziest shit ever. And so one of the theories is that it's an unacknowledged special access program. It's a USAP, uh, which neither Joint Chiefs of Staff Intelligence nor the director of the DIA himself has any information on USAPs. They're organizations wow. that maintain information. The leadership remains, quote unquote, protected from such knowledge. Basically, USAPs are designed to have government, like basically black projects, secret projects that are designed to be hidden from the general public and the military. Not only yeah. are they designed that way, but they're designed with such secrecy towards the highest levels of command so that highest levels of command will report there are no such agencies because I would know about it. You know, that's part of their game. <laughs> yeah, how do you get hired at these places? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, ask Bob Lazar. I guess sometimes you can be unlucky enough. Um, but wow. Miller, Miller referenced the possibility of unacknowledged special access programs as one potential location for a group controlling access to UFO information. There, and there are mechanisms in place to hide things from the public. That's what they are. They're, they're basically within the Department of Defense. Here's one of the brilliant things that they do, and we'll find information on this in John Keel's work. Um, Nick Redford talks about this, where they... They, one of their tactics, if let's say a little bit of information on one of these projects comes out, they'll release information one way or another that contains a bit of the real program, a bit of the real information, a bit of the story with a bunch of disinformation. So they'll mm. release truths about it, but they'll also release things that are absurd and ridiculous. So they basically, they do what the media does, which is anytime there's a story, they'll report at it as serious and then they'll crack a joke on it and make it seem ridiculous. So that you're kind of left thinking, all right, whatever, this is a waste of time. It's just yeah. some, it's just, it's like, you know, it's that game. I don't know if you ever played that game where you tell like a couple lies and you tell a truth and you kind of hide the truth in there and you see if anybody can guess what ends up happening. Two truths and a lie. Two truths and a lie. 
It's it's the same exact concept. It's it's good old fashioned deception, um, and that's what we're dealing with here. I mean, uh, Leslie Leslie has a lot of people off record that talk about having knowledge of these secret programs. I mean, there's a lot of people that George Knapp talks to uh, over the course of his career who uh, claim to be part of these programs. These are the Bob Lazars that never spoke up, that never came out. And, uh, and basically the reason that they don't, um, speak up or come out is because there's actual laws in place to ruin your life. If you speak up about any of this stuff, the force regulation, like reverse witness protection, (laughs) force regulation, 202 unidentified flying object reporting, for example, is under this regulation. It prohibits the release to the public and the media of any data about those objects which are not explainable. Joint Army, Navy, Air Force Publication 146, it threatens to prosecute anyone under this jurisdiction. And listen, this includes pilots, civilians, merchant marine captains, and even fishing vessels. They will destroy (laughs) your life if you go public with any of this. Which just automatically makes me think that they are somehow involved in what these people are seeing. That they that they know more than they let on, and that's why they don't want anyone talking about it. Well, listen, it's funded. It's there's 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 physical office space for it. There are people with keys and cars and and access to things that you know. And the crazy thing is, like imagining Bob Lazar coming out with his story, and just imagining like everything that's been going on there ever since. I mean, even if they're only yeah. making fractions of leaps forward, how many other Bob Lazars have they recruited? How many other right. brilliant new tech Silicon Valley guys have they recruited? How many people have been roped into this madness? And where where are we at with this stuff? Where are we at? Like, is it is it really just like a super um, disorganized group of people who... You know, just have access to crazy <laughs> toys, or is it they, they go into work every day and they're like, Why am I even here? I don't really know what I'm doing. Imagine they're just like, Dude, like, they have they you all- seen How I Met Your Mother? Yeah, it makes me think of Barney. Like, nobody knew what Barney did, but he made a ton of money and like he never ever ever talked about it. So, you're like, Is it Barney? Barney works for UFOs. I and mean, it, above it could a be- top secret. It could worse. be somebody wonderful that that their their cover is to be like uh, outgoing and a great part of society, and yet you never know that your your uh, son's soccer coach's like wife is you know driving UFOs at night. Um, That's like very similar with the drug cartel too. They're they're supposed to be people that are integrated into society in a good positive way that donate money and they're in with the police, you know, force and whatever, so that you have no suspect against them. <laughs> you wouldn't, man. Or or they're quiet people, and I mean, there's so many people in the world. I mean, and yeah. and honestly, based on what I've looked into and and what I've read, I I mean, not only are there people out there with keys to some pretty strange cars. Like we have a lot of aliens out there. We have a lot of (laughs) people, uh, humanoids. We have a lot of weird things and entities 
mixed up with our species. And there's just too many of us and there's too much out there. That's why I love the X-Files so much is because it was able to show you like in a truly realistic fashion how these things would be mixed up with reality where it would just be like, it's an entity, it's an intelligence, it lives, it eats, it does, well, whatever it does, it functions. And these things are functioning uh, alongside us. One thing that uh, Leslie talks about is she goes as far as to talk about, um, and I kind of love this, Senator Goldwater, and she talks about, uh, she talks about Jimmy Carter, but she talks about Senator Goldwater, who is uh, just a perfect example of a, a high government official, a senator who uh, tries to find out more about UFOs and things are shut in his face. I mean, Jimmy, Jimmy Carter is a great yeah. example of a president trying to find out more about this. Yeah. And he's denied everything. Wow. He's basically told to shut up. Uh, the, the <laughs> senator Goldwater says, I think the government does know. He says, I can't back that up. He says in 1994, but I think that at Wright Patterson Field, if you get into certain places, you'd find out what the Air Force and the government knows about UFOs. I called Curtis LeMay and I said, General, I know we have a room at Wright Patterson where you pull all this secret stuff. Can I go in there? This is a senator asking. He says he's never heard the general get mad, but the general gets madder than hell and curses and say, don't ever ask me that question again. It's like a scene from a movie. At one point, there is uh, uh, when when we have um, Schiff in 1994, another politician looking to uh, get to the bottom of a lot of this stuff. He was waiting for results from the GAO, and it retracted a statement that announced the crash debris actually came from. Oh no! So this is in 1994. So get this: around 1994. Okay, so get this: 1994. Uh, Schiff is waiting for results from the GAO and the government, 1994, after, after all these years about Roswell, it retracts its statement about a weather balloon. And the government really? officially says that the crash debris came from a then classified device to detect evidence from possible Soviet nuclear testing. So after all these years, the government puts out this absurd explanation for, for something that um, wasn't a weather balloon, wasn't a right. Soviet nuclear device. So there you have it. I promised that I would explain wow. Roswell. Don't worry, everybody. It was just a then-classified device to detect evidence <laughs> of possible Soviet nuclear testing. And the cover-ups continue. This, um, yeah, this makes me wonder about Trump's Space Force and what's going to happen with that now, too. I mean, we don't know where things are going. I mean, right. we're, we're getting pretty fun technology in our cell phones here. What are we going to have in space? And we have all right. these, we have the privatization of space. I want to, I would love for us to get, uh, get some information, maybe do a show where we just cover the latest in what's going on with, you know, or we just cover news stories where we cover the latest of what's going on in space and, and what people are up to, because uh, it is very exciting. And, and I don't know, you know, I don't know when, when this stuff is going to bubble to the surface. 
You know, I wonder right. when the next wave is going to happen. When is the next mm. wave going to happen where you or your family or someone's family or someone's friend is going to be out there and there's just going to be this crazy light show in the sky? And, and are we in any better a position to stop denying that it's real? I mean, I think that, look, you and I, we, 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 we didn't plan on doing this show like a while ago. You know, how many people just weren't there yet. And then somehow we're, we're evolving and we're getting to places. Look at Joe Rogan. We're, we're getting to places where as individuals and collectively, we're beginning to ask ourselves like, yeah, like maybe we are ready. We are ready to face this and we are ready to perhaps look at it in another way. I love that. That's beautiful. So Leslie Keen has a terrific book. We 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 just scratched the surface of it, and she she actually she this is what I want to end on. Uh, at the end, she says that we need to have uh, Leslie Keen uh, at the end of her book. She says we need to have a militant agnosticism. Uh, mm. That's the best defense that we have to deal with all of the taboo all of the madness, we need to just be agnostic about it. We don't have to believe in extraterrestrials. We don't have to believe in gods. We don't have to believe in anything because we don't know. And we don't have to disbelieve either. But we can't disbelieve that this is happening. We cannot turn away from it because we have to be open-minded enough to study it. We have to be open-minded enough to work together. We have to be open-minded enough to laugh about this and get over it. Listen, it'll take everybody a few days or a few weeks or maybe a year, whatever it takes to, to cry and, and realize that we're not alone and that things are way, way weirder than we could have imagined. But once we start uncovering this stuff, we get to see that we get to have a lot of great conversations about this and we get to, we get to share in the possibilities. So I'm, I'm cool with being agnostic about it. You know, because I, yeah. we don't know. We don't know if it's a kid with a holographic device from the future. We don't know if it's a <laughs> god. We don't know if it's a space puppy. We don't know. We don't know what we're dealing with. Thank you for dining with us. Hold those cosmic appetites for next time. Reach out to us on Twitter and follow us on Instagram at Cosmic Feast. 